0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, I am joined by Juan Corridor Garcia and Christine Perry who have studied and published writings on deforestation issues in Latin America and particularly Colombia. Juan is a PhD student studying political science at the Graduate Center, City University of New York or CUNY and a Fulbright-Minsciencias Fellow. Juan studies the politics of green militarization in South America with a particular focus on the Amazon rainforest. Prior to joining CUNY, Juan worked as a researcher for the Colombian Truth Commission and the Ideas for Peace Foundation. Our second guest, Christine, is staff attorney at the Environmental Law Institute committed to advancing human rights in the environmental context with a particular focus on gender and disability. She works on international issues and has experience in judicial training on deforestation issues in Colombia, environmental crimes in Peru, migration with dignity, and enforcement issues more broadly. Prior to joining ELI, Christine worked for the International Secretariat's Law and Policy Program at Amnesty International. In today's episode, Juan and Christine will provide an overview of the deforestation issues present in Colombia. They will also discuss how these issues relate to environmental law and green militarization. Juan will talk about his most recent publication, an article he co-authored with Fernando Lopez, titled The Logic of War on Deforestation, A Military Response to Climate Change in the Colombian Amazon. Juan and his co-author analyze the war on deforestation declared by the Colombian government and explain how climate change has encouraged some Latin American countries to initiate military actions with the goal of protecting the environment. Juan will also give us more insight on the factors that motivate governments to militarize environmental policies and the implications of these new military actions. Christine will be talking about a manual she worked on and helped publish through ELI called Deforestación y Derecho Manual para el Abordaje Judicial de la Deforestación en Colombia, which acts as a manual for judges and policymakers in Colombia to better understand deforestation issues. Christine will discuss how environmental laws and the judiciary can play a role in preventing deforestation. She will also touch upon the ongoing work on
0: deforestation issues that she does at ELI.
1: Juan and Christine, thank you both for being here today.
0: Hi, Georgia. Thanks for having us.
1: Very happy to be here, Georgia. Thank you. So I want to start by inviting you two, our guests, to talk a little bit more about who you are and the work that you do. Can you tell us more about yourselves the topics you've worked on and what led you to focus on deforestation issues
0: yeah sure so i'm a doctoral student at cuny in new york i'm working on environmental issues and violent conflict in latin america i'm also originally from colombia so it means that i was really interested in the outcome of, of the peace agreement between the colombian state of the park guerrilla in 2016 so deforestation Was one of the unintended consequences of the peace agreement. So, this is how I came to study this topic some years ago.
2: So, I originally come from a human rights background with a focus on gender and disability rights. My journey to deforestation happened when I joined the Environmental Law Institute to work on a project in Colombia concerning judicial training on deforestation issues. And since then, it's Pop up in a lot of my other work in Latin America, for example, in Guatemala, in Peru for natural resource crimes.
1: Thank you both. And and something our listeners probably do not know is that Juan and Christine have actually worked alongside each other at ELI a little bit. And that's something that we'll, we'll talk about that coordination later on in the episode. Do either of you want to just give a word on what that looks like and how you know each other? Sure. So this
2: was a three-year project generously supported by the Swedish Postcode Foundation, and it looked at training judges, as I said before, on deforestation issues, on topics of evidence, public participation, and judicial remedies. And part of this project, we had several different initiatives, one of them being a series of webinars on green courts and tribunals. And we connected with Juan at that time, and he helped transcribe the webinars so we could put them into sort of a memoir. And we also had a book come out of one of our policy dialogues from this project, our first policy dialogue on governance for peace. And Juan was one of the peer editors for that book. So I'm not sure, Juan, if you'd like to add a little bit more.
0: Yes, actually, in 2022, I started looking for opportunities or, or internship in some institutes on environmental issues in the U.S. And then I followed Eli and I reached out to Christine and it was a way that we start collaborating together. Most recently, this book was a really good opportunity to keep working with Eli in these terrific topics.
1: Well, I know I speak for all of ELI when I say that we've only had great experiences with Juan and we're really excited that he's worked with us in the past and is here to talk today about deforestation in the Colombian Amazon. So let's get into it. What is happening with deforestation in that region and why is it such a pressing issue?
0: First of all, I want to say that the Amazon has nine countries, which includes Brazil, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, Guyana and Suriname and also the French Guyana. But the Colombian Amazon, it's getting a different treatment of deforestation because of the Colombian state were using soldiers and uh, an entire army to tackle the deforestation. The South American states are facing the deforestation problem in the Amazon, but Colombia currently created a a war that called a war on deforestation. They created also a military campaign called Artemisa Operation, And they deployed like more than 25,000 soldiers in 21 and 2022. So this is like a a big problem that the state is understanding as a war, as a green war. And also it's important to mention that Colombia has lost like 30% of its forests since 2003. The deforestation rates increased after the peace agreement between the Colombian state and the FAR guerrilla. Because the civil war provided some sort of protection of the Amazon rainforest and once the park leaves this territory, new actors emerge and start producing deforestation, basically.
1: Thank you for that background, Juan. And in your recent article, you discuss a new wave of military action called Green Militarization. I feel like you kind of hinted at that in your last answer. But what does this specific term mean and what are some notable examples of it across Latin America?
0: Yeah, sure. This is a concept that I'm using from Elizabeth Lundstrom, a geographer. And she's basically defining the concept as the use of military and paramilitary actors, techniques, technologies, and partnerships in the pursuit of conservation. It has been used mostly in Africa, in the natural parks, in South Africa, Mozambique, Congo, and other countries. But in Latin America, what I'm saying here is that remilitarization is also happening in the Amazon. And other parts of like Brazil, like Colombia, like Guatemala. It's basically that the states are now trying to tackle environmental problems through military lenses. And they also use the rhetorical language of war, which is basically justifying the need to send soldiers to protect the forest, to protect also natural resources, the environment in general. So this is a new trend that is happening in many places of the world. And and now the Amazon is experimenting this.
1: Where did it happen first, if it's as clear cut as any one particular instance?
0: Well, I'm not a historian, but according to the author, it it happens in South Africa and in Congo uh, some years ago. And the article that I'm talking about is an article published in 2014. But before that, nobody were using. And I think that historians in Africa might say that it started in since colonial, post-colonial periods. The case that we are facing today with the deforestation in Colombia is the first case of climate change remilitarization, which is a different trend on that mechanism.
1: Another phrase that is really particular to the Colombian context is the phrase, a war on deforestation declared by the Colombian government. What factors motivated that decision and how were these military decisions shaped by the previous armed conflicts that you've talked about?
0: That's a good question. The Colombian post-conflict scenario justified the presence of the military actor because there were other ongoing conflicts with other actors, not the FAR, but other guerrillas and participating groups and paramilitary groups or yeah, drug traffickers and so on. So the government needs to justify the presence of those military. And I think that the peace agreement gave a new opportunity to understand the environment, the Amazon rainforest, as one of the victims of this conflict and the need for protection. Colombia has been experiencing a civil war since 1948. And the previous work, like the war on communism, terrorism, and drugs, We're located in the same place where the war on deforestation is taking place. So you can see like a spatial coincidence between this previous work and the new work that the state is waging.
1: So you've mentioned, you know, peace agreements and peace building efforts more generally. Obviously, when we hear these terms like war, militarization, it indicates that there could potentially be some human costs. How is that looked?
0: There are definitely human rights violations. This military campaign is targeting the lowest actors in the chain of deforestation because we have to understand that there are many drivers of deforestation. You can see non-state armed actors. You can see also corporations and transnationals, nationals. But there are also local people participating in deforestation because they are forced, because they don't have other opportunities. So what this military campaign did between 2021 and 2022 was to target peasants, indigenous communities or campesinos, as we say in Spanish, and they were just prosecuting those local communities rather than the criminal rebel actors that are provoking deforestation. So those unintended consequences are something that the media outlets, particularly in Colombia, in Spanish, has revealed. However, there are still some problems with acknowledging that there are terrible human rights violations.
1: Christine, I, I would love to get your take on that issue as well, especially these instances where there's not a, a obvious right and wrong. We obviously want this environmental protection, but then does that come at the cost of local communities? How do the worlds of human rights and environmental protection intersect there?
2: That's a really good point, Georgia and one that... These should not be seen as two distinct competing factions. That there can be good environmental governance that respects the rule of law and also respects human rights, that they're not mutually exclusive. Something really that we focused on in the project that we did in Colombia was public participation, engaging communities, Indigenous communities, Campesinos, people that live on the land and are most impacted by these decisions and issues. They really need to have their voices heard in the process. They add a different layer, a different knowledge that sometimes is lost that traditional wisdom, indigenous wisdom is so important in safeguarding our forests, the rainforests in Colombia, in the Amazon and beyond. And without that, we really are missing a critical voice, a critical lens in this conversation. Colombia has a very active civil society, very active indigenous communities. That's one part of this. There's also so many other pieces that need to be considered when respecting human rights in this process.
1: Christine, I'd love to take a moment to loop in another project that we have actually been working on together, especially as you start to talk about the indigenous communities and the role that they play it reminds me of this project that we've been working on considering legal protections for environmental defenders in Central and South America, with particular emphasis on Peru. And something we've found in that project is a lot of these environmental defenders are also of indigenous communities, indigenous descent. You see these local people who have been forced into deforestation or, or don't have any other options, but then you also have local people who are very much fighting against it, which is an interesting tension. So I know this is the passion of yours because, again, it really sits at that intersection between human rights and environmental protection. But what role do environmental defenders play in the protection of the Amazon? And how does our environmental defender work relate to your deforestation work?
2: Thank you for that, Georgia. And yes, we just finished a project in Peru for the USAID-funded Prevenir Project on environmental defenders and the protection of them. And environmental defenders are so critical in the fight against deforestation, in safeguarding the Amazon. These communities, including Indigenous communities, are on the front line, and often they know the land best. They've lived there for Indigenous communities. They've lived with the land for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years sometimes. They know how to take care of it, and by listening to them and learning from them, we really can take a lot of knowledge, traditional knowledge, traditional wisdom, and use that in the fight against deforestation. So looking in our work in Peru, it's the local level of engagement that is sometimes missing. These decisions are coming from capitals that are so far removed of what's happening on the ground, a lot is lost there. But by taking the time to talk with these defenders, to learn their stories, to learn what's happening to them, so much can be gained from that. And something Peru has done in certain regions is set up roundtable discussions with different agencies, with communities, indigenous communities, local governments, ministries, and really help get that conversation going. Of course, that's not going to solve the protection issues overnight, but it's a step. And as one sure knows, it's extremely dangerous to be an environmental defender in Colombia. Colombia is far and away one of the most dangerous places in the world for environmental defenders. The Colombian government does have a number of protection measures for them, but the implementation is really an issue and learning what works, what doesn't work is vital to protect them because they are truly protecting the rainforest, protecting the earth and their human
1: rights in the process. When we think about the Venn diagram, as it were, between deforestation and this environmental defenders work, would you say the converging point is that public participation or is there something else in the center of that Venn diagram? I do think public
2: participation is critical, but I don't think there's one point in the center of the Venn diagram that's going to make a perfect circle. Civil society has a big role in this. Government, the judiciary, like I explained our project in Colombia, that it worked with judges how to handle these deforestation cases they're getting. What are some tools available to them to decide cases, what has worked in other jurisdictions? For example, we had a judge from the U.S. on our faculty. We had a judge from the Land and Environment Court from Sweden, a Chilean former judge, a judge in Colombia was part of our faculty. We really took a wide view of what judicial remedies are available and what can work in these types of situations. And also, say you have XYZ problem, who do you order? Where does the order go? Does it go to this ministry or that ministry? Because it is a very complex process. And if you might send the order to the wrong ministry, not on purpose, just because it is very complex. So working through these issues of who handles what, who has the authority to do things really can help strengthen the judiciary's role. There's also a vital role for prosecutors in bringing these cases. It's not only dangerous for environmental defenders, it's dangerous for the prosecutors. It's dangerous for the judges, for the government actors in this. There is a lot of money behind deforestation. And so the actors that are driving it really don't want to see these changes and they can make very bad things happen with that money and that power.
1: I do want to ask you more directly about your work in judicial training. I know this judicial training, judicial education has become somewhat of a sticking point for us here at ELI. We also have our Climate Judiciary Project, which has been featured on the podcast before. And if I can just you know, briefly give voice to the doubters of this kind of work, I think we can all agree that it's really important for the judiciary to stay politically impartial or at least, you know, not prescribing to a specific political ideology. And we are obviously a nonpartisan institute as well. So what do you say in response to people who might try to paint this as a partisan issue? And how have you tried to approach this judicial training in a way that is going to present those legal avenues for environmental protection, but doesn't tip over into that ideological realm?
2: That's a great question, Georgia, and something really important to discuss that we didn't go into Columbia to discuss, to talk with the judges and say, you need to do this, this and that. We really built partnerships with organizations on the ground. We worked with the Global Green Growth Institute's Columbia office. We worked with the governing judicial body in Columbia, their judicial school, We had events with the prosecutor's office that we really had a wide network working on this. And again, we didn't go in and say, this is the right way to do this. We have the answers. You don't. It was more, these are experiences from judges who have done this type of work in different jurisdictions. For example, Sweden does have the land and environment court where one of our collaborators, Anders Bengtsson, was a former judge. So for example, Judge Bankston was able to share his experiences and he wasn't saying you need to do this, this and that. It was, this is what I've done in the past and this is what's worked. Some of the judges hadn't had one of these cases before or they didn't have experience with it. Some of them had had these cases and had ample experience with it. So it was really giving them a common understanding of the issues, the legal framework surrounding the issues and a sampling of tools that they can use to help decide these cases. More than anything, it was very much a partnership, a partnership with our Colombian partners, a partnership with the judiciary that ELI does not go into somewhere and say, this is how it's done. We simply give the tools.
1: I'm interested in bringing your two arms of this work into conversation with each other. So I'm kind of thinking about it. You know, Christine, you heard Juan describe this green militarization. And how would you, if there was a case around the green militarization, what kind of resources would you point judges towards? And on the other side, Juan, as you listen to Christine talk about training in the judiciary, what from your paper do you think is important for judges to understand
0: Yes, Georgia, this is an excellent question, because I think that the military treatment that the Colombian state adopted in those years, where former president of, of Colombia, Iván Duque, implemented, it didn't use only armed forces, but also all of the legal system. They created new green crimes. For instance, the deforestation appeared as a green crime after the creation of the Law twenty one eleven of 2021. So this way of framing deforestation, which is a crime, but in some cases is different. Who is producing the logging? If it's a peasant or an armed actor, it's something that I think that the judicial branch of the state should take into account in order to stop militarizing and using the armed forces to just prosecute ordinary citizens. That's one of the first things that the constitution or new articles should bring into consideration. Because otherwise if local communities are equated to terrorists or to drug traffickers or to deforestators, I think that poses a serious problem in order to how to tackle and to use of the judicial system when it's quite punitive against those local communities, it's going to be a challenge. So I think that a new, different way of understanding those communities should be included from a different non-remilitarization approach.
2: The discussion, if judges get something along these lines of these cases, a really good resource will be the manual that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, Georgia on Diforcesion, y Derecho, that the manual is... Available, You can download it. It's free. And it's really going to lay out different frameworks, different avenues on how to handle and decide these types of cases.
1: I'm glad that resource is available to judges. And thank you both for bringing those two worlds together for me. Now I want to look ahead. How do you expect these deforestation issues in Latin America to transform and evolve over time? You mentioned this a little bit in your last answer, Juan, but what should be the way forward for Colombia and other countries aiming to protect their environment and combat climate change, particularly as it relates to deforestation?
0: There is a political change between the last president and the new president of Colombia. Uh, they have different approaches. So the former president, uh, Ivan Duque, was the creator of this Artemisa operation. Whereas Gustavo Petro, the first left-wing president who took power in 2022, offered a different non-militaristic approach with support of local communities. However, I think that the local communities do not trust on the state. And this remains the main challenge to create a collaborative way that might engage to overcome some sort of environmental problems like deforestation. So this is one challenge, how to recover the trust on local communities, because the state just didn't change because for the local people, just because there is a new president. Moreover, I think that the conflict, since the conflict is still ongoing, there are many different actors participating in logging, and it's so difficult to deactivate those issues. So there is a still a need of using armed forces. However, it is clear that the distinction between local community and combatants should be very clear for the state. And in some cases, the state, it's not seeing that difference. But I guess since this new president, Gustavo Petro, it's offering a more progressive approach, I'm expecting to have a different picture of deforestation, And actually, the deforestation rates reduced almost 22% last year because of the different approach that uh, Gustavo Petro is using, which is not entirely militaristic. However, there is a still this important use of helicopters, soldiers, and so on, in order to tackle deforestation hotspots in the Amazon.
2: I love hearing that deforestation has decreased last year in twenty twenty two one. That's really wonderful. I think something else that is going to potentially change the landscape in Latin America and potentially deforestation is the Escazú agreement. It's an exciting tool. It's still very new so it's unclear how it will change the landscape. Juan, please correct me if I'm wrong that it's currently at the Constitutional Court in Colombia as of the summer of 2023 to decide its constitutionality. As more states adopt this, it will be exciting to see where this goes and how it really changes the environmental landscapes in these countries.
0: Yes, Christine, definitely, you're right. And since Gustavo Petro wants to present as an environmental president, he has been supporting this initiative that was not really well supported by the former president. And we don't know how it's going to change this treaty, but at least it provides new tools for the protection of environmental and land defenders Also, the creation of this treaty had the essential role of the civil society organizations. They were working with environmental experts in the field. So I think that at least from the legal aspect of this treaty, it's going to offer new tools to the communities and to the states to overcome these issues.
1: Well, thank you both for being here today. I want to end on a note of collaboration. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Juan, I know you've worked alongside ELI in the past. We mentioned the couple different ways that you did that. How will these cross-organizational and cross-cultural approaches continue to be important in addressing deforestation in the Amazon? Or should there be a new way forward?
0: Well, I believe that ELI offers a great opportunity to work between several actors and several disciplines. I'm working from the political science discipline at the PhD level, but I know that you are also working with judges, prosecutors, and local communities. So I think that it's quite important to bring those actors together in order to get a better collaboration and understanding of different points of view that are going to solve a pressing problem. There is deforestation, climate change, and other environmental pressing problems so this approach it's something that we need to reinforce because we cannot work independently from one actors to others if we want to face a problem that it's requiring holistic approaches so i really believe that the work of eli it's great in terms of putting together those several actors and approaches
2: i think that collaboration is so important in this field we were very lucky to meet Juan during the course of our project in Colombia, but we've also made other amazing connections with Colombian academics, legal professionals. That's really part of a core tenet of our work is working with people on the ground where we work. That That's, I think, something that makes ELI so special, that we always have local partners to help bring that really much needed perspective that ELI does bring a lot to the table, but we obviously, we don't know the region better than the people living there. And we will never say that. So building these connections and relationships with people is really wonderful and enriching to our work, but also enriching to me personally. I I love being able to say, I know all these people from around the world that are doing such amazing work and are really amazing people.
1: Well, as two of the people I've felt lucky to get to know through my time at ELI, Christine Juan, thank you for being here today and for your incredibly interesting scholarly contributions to green militarization and deforestation issues in Latin America. Thank you so much, Georgia and Juan. It was a pleasure to connect again.
0: Thank you both for this excellent podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.